Welcome to Hustle and Pro. I'm your host, Kelly Walker, and our guest is Jay Tuff today, who's going to talk to us a little bit about what some of the Olympic athletes might be going through right about now as we approach Olympics time. So hi, Jay. Welcome to Hustle and Pro. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to learn a little bit about more of, of what you do. But before we do that, what's your background? How can we better understand, you know, what your experience and expertise is? Yeah. Um, so my the formal education, um, the graduate degree is in high performance and sports psychology um, from out here in Denver. The University of Denver has a great program in that for anybody that may be interested in, in that kind of career track. So um, came out here after undergrad in, oh, that was 2014. Um, came out here for that. And then while I was there, had an opportunity to be down at the Olympic Training Center and work with those athletes and in preparation for Rio, which was in 2016. So spent a okay. couple years there, um, finished up that work with those athletes, getting ready for that. And then have got, um, started my own company, my own mental performance um, practice out here in Denver. And have been doing that for about five years now, working with athletes, performers, corporate executives. Um, it's easier to name a population that I haven't worked with, um, but just really helping them um, elevate their ability to mentally perform better handle stress and pressure and adversity. Um, so that way they're able to show up in those moments that matter to them, just like, you know, very similar to what the work that we, uh, we did, um, in preparation for 2016. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, I think you were at in Colorado Springs, um, U S Olympic training center. I never know when someone says that I automatically, yeah. I don't know. I think of like Utah and places like that. Are there a <laughs> lot of these around the country or just a few? So the, the big ones um, that probably get the most traction. So Colorado Springs is actually a summer Olympic training site. So the majority of the Olympic training sites will either have a winter or a summer designation. So Colorado actually has two. Um, Colorado Springs is the summer site. And then, of course, Aspen is the winter site where you do all your skiing, snowboarding, all that good stuff. Um, another main major one is Chula Vista, California. And then I believe there's one out east now since I've been there. But yeah, they're, they're all over. Um, and, you know, they're, they're also, you know, kind of international to um, the U.S. We have a lot of relationships with a lot of other countries where they'll go and they'll do, you know, friendly, friendly competitions and stuff like that. But yeah, as far as Colorado goes, there's two the summer site in the springs and then um, the winter site up in aspen okay i didn't know that so thank you for clarifying uh you were there mm -hmm. from 2014 to 16 like you said getting ready for rio so your work isn't physical training right all the, a lot of what they're doing there is physical training but it's more mm -hmm. mindfulness resilience um mental and so mm -hmm. tell me what that actually looks like yeah the work um looks quite a bit different depending on, you know, who we're working with, what the team is, that sort of thing. So um, I would say the majority of the work that I do is I probably do 75% individual, just one-on-one, -on -one. actually very similar to this, you know, you and I were communicating over a Zoom session. So this is actually pretty similar um, to what I do there. And then about 25% is kind of the group and team stuff. And obviously that took a big down downturn with what we kind of all went through this last year, sure. um, but was still able to find actually some ways to do some teamwork via Zoom and via some telework, that sort of thing. So um, to get back to your question, what the work looks like. So generally with me, when I when a one-on-one -on -one athlete comes to me, 
it's usually one of two things. And usually the first one is the majority of the time. So the majority of the time they're coming to me because they're, they're having a specific struggle or they're having a real hard challenge. And I think, unfortunately, we still see a lot of athletes who they really don't invest in the mental side of their sport. And we can kind of talk about what all the, all the sides of, of a sport are, but they really don't invest in the mental side of their sport until something goes wrong. Right. And we we, we see sort that. of just tend to, um, not think it's needed until it's needed yeah. until we see that it's needed. Right. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, so I'll go into one of, one of the questions that I'll have when I sit down with a group, especially is, you know, one of the hockey teams that I work with out here, we'll sit down and it'll be our first session. And I'll ask the, the stereotypical question, how much of hockey is mental? And I'll get these massive percentages, you know, exp- you know, hockey players and I think there are certain sports that kind of recognize and embrace the mental component um, versus other sports. But I think the majority of them are coming around um, to this idea that the mental side of sport matters. But when I ask that question, I'll usually get somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 80, even 90 percent. Okay. So generally, and I think you also have to understand too, that these hockey players that I work with, they've been in their sport for a long time. So they kind of got the the physical and the technical and the tactical side shored up. And so for really for them, for their ability to perform and set themselves apart, it's really hard to get that physical edge. It's really hard to get a technical and tactical edge because everybody's talented at their level. And so they really, then at that point, really start to attribute the mental side to be a big percentage. But then I'll ask the follow-up question of, well, how much time do you spend on the mental side? And generally it's a big fat goose egg. You know, it's very, very little. And I actually don't think that it's due to athletes being unaware of the importance of the mental side. I think it's a lack of education and I think it's a lack of resources. Yeah. I was going to say resources on what to, even if you're aware, it's like, what do you do about it? How do you spend time improving it and working on it? Um, so that's probably like where you're so helpful. Exactly. Even you Kelly, like as a, you know, let's say that you're an athlete and if you're an athlete and I asked you to put together some sort of strength and conditioning program, you could probably put together something, or even just you as a person in your day-to-day life, you could put together two, three, four workouts. If I said, okay, go ahead and put together a mental training program or a mental training workout for yourself. The majority of people, including probably yourself, wouldn't even really know where to start. Like, what do I even do? How do I piece it together? What does it even look like? So I think it's not necessarily a lack of desire or a lack of willingness or a lack of thinking that it's important. Um, I think the bigger issue is just a lack of resources. And what do I do? Where do I start? That's been a big reason why I've transitioned a lot of what I do to online, you know, with the YouTube channel, with the resources on the website to just give people a starting point. You mentioned, um, you know, when athletes are coming to you because they see a, a challenge or they're struggling with something. When you're at something like the U.S. Olympic Training Center, are all athletes required or encouraged to come to you just sort of as a default piece of all training? Or do they, is it only those who seek you out? It, it depends on, well, quite honestly, how much their national governing body thinks that they have the potential to meddle. So let me break that down a little bit. Um, I think the majority of people, when they think of the Olympic Training Center, they think of, you know, wow, this is an amazing place. It's, you know, there's so many resources and stuff like that. And it is, it's an incredible place. It was an incredible place to spend a couple of years to kind of get started in my career. But I wouldn't describe it as exactly a warm and fuzzy, a fuzzy place because in many ways it's actually very cutthroat. So 
For example, USA Swimming is located down in Colorado Springs. Now, obviously, there's a lot of swimmers. There's only a select few that will even qualify for the Olympics and then, right. and then even a smaller percentage, of um, a fraction of a percentage, a percentage of those people will then go on to podium or medal. Well, let's say that you're a swimmer, Kelly, and, you're nat- and so you're national governing body. So you have the US Olympic, um, U.S. Olympic Committee, and then you have all the national governing bodies. So USA Wrestling's a NGB, um, USA Swimming, USA Shooting, all of them have their own, and, 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 and they all have, so they're all their own little companies inside of this Olympic Training Center, which also means they all have their own budget. And obviously you can assume that USA swimming's budget due to sponsorships is significantly larger than that of USA shooting. So the resources then kind of get divvied out as such. So USA swimming will then decide, okay, which of these athletes are we really going to make a big investment in? We're going to throw a lot of resources because we only have so much of a budget. Now, generally USA swimming can pretty much pay for all their athletes to get whatever they want. Whereas Mm -hmm. USA shooting can't. So that it kind of works on like a tier tier system. So if you're there, generally they might pay for your house. If, if you're there and they think that you have some potential, they might pay for your housing to place to stay, play for pay for a few meals, um, pay for your strength and conditioning. And that might be tier one. Tier two might be all of tier one. Plus maybe you get some rehab, you get some massage therapy, you get access to the medical team, x-ray, that sort of thing. And then tier three is basically the, the entire campus is like your oyster. And generally the majority of those, maybe tier two and tier three athletes were the ones that were able to, to kind of access us. So it wasn't everybody, um, but it, but it, it, it always goes on, you know, based on whatever the national governing body thinks your individual yeah. medal potential is. Wow. So. And that's not what I would have. That's not what I assumed. I just sort yeah. of assumed, okay, you're there when you make yep. it to get the ability or invite to train there, mm-hmm. you have, you know, all these things at your fingertips and you can, mm-hmm. you know, absorb all these amazing tools if you want to. Okay. One more thing about the Olympics. When do you think the biggest stressors happen for athletes in this timeline? Like we talked about, you know, your two years leading up to Rio is when you're talking with these athletes. Yeah. Do you see it as, you know, two years, one year, a week out, like a week before trials? Like when do you think it's the most intense for them? So I think as far as most intense, it's probably many times for, at least for the ones that I worked with the night before. You know, so you think about an Olympic athlete and kind of, and I think there's a big crossover to kind of entrepreneurs and mindset and stuff like that. But, you know, these are individuals who are training for four years for, you know, a moment that's effectively going to last, you know, anywhere from 20 seconds to five minutes. And then that's, that's right. kind of it. And hopefully you, you know, you advance and you, and you can continue on, but, but yeah, you don't get much it, time to, to show no, what you've been training for. No. So yeah. I think, I think for most athletes, you have this, you know, for the, for the, the biggest chunk of it, your day's pretty well set. You have pretty much have a routine. You wake up, you get a good meal in, you go train, you eat, you do some therapy. You might have a, a an evening training session, or you might do some mental stuff or, or some of that stuff. Like, like your day's pretty well regimented for like as an athlete. And I think as athletes, you know, they really, they really enjoy that. And they really appreciate that. And I guess I should also say too, you know, maybe the night before the Olympic qualifier, you know, especially if you're somebody who, cause everybody needs to qualify, you know, it's, it's the ultimate meritocracy, right? You have to put up the time, you have to put up the score. 
Yeah. Um, and even so I would say that even if you're a leader and right. you still have to qualify, that can be a lot of pressure just knowing yep. that one bad day, you know, all this pressure, everybody assumes you're going to make it, but yep. then, you know, one bad routine, one bad race or whatever it is could, yep. could derail all those expectations that you already have for yourself. Thousand percent. We had that happen to a, to, to one of the shooters, um, one of the shooters, I think she was ranked third in the world at the time and she didn't make it out of qualifying and just absolutely devastated, yeah. you know, and, you know, it, and it's, it, it's the, it's the thing that we love about sport. Um, that's also the downside of sports, the challenge of sport, um, you know, yeah. because the other side of that story is that also mean that that means that a door opened for, for somebody else. Um, somebody else was able to show up yeah. um, and be the best version of themselves. So yeah, it, it absolutely happens. Yeah. Somebody else gets to tell the story of, the last minute a spot opened and I got to capitalize on it and yep. go fulfill my dream. But for that to happen, that means someone else's dream might have just gotten cut mm-hmm. short. Okay. So you were saying that the night before qualifiers and then the night before yeah. like, their performances. Yeah. I, I would say that's probably, probably the highest point because then even when you get into the moment of the competition, at least if you're many of these athletes, I mean, you know, with, they have these routines that they go through. They have their pre-performance routine. I mean, basically, you know, like one of the things that I do with my one-on-one clients is to take, you know, one of the, one of the models and one of the techniques that we did with, with those athletes. And I'll have, you know, say, for example, my figure skater that I work with, you know, every single time block leading up to her performance she's doing something with this intent and this and even that's like nice and regimented and obviously there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of excitement but she's prepared for that she's she's been working through that that sort of thing so then you talk about the sport it's funny because yeah I, I wouldn't think the actual act of performing that sport mm-hmm. is what's really bothering you at that point you Mm-mm. train you that's your that's your life and you know you can do that like you're mm-hmm. confident in that but then what are the other things that get in their heads I mean I'm guessing it's for some of these athletes that are young it's their parents maybe if they're not young athletes it's the fact that they maybe have a toddler over there or a spouse or a partner or someone that they're trying to get tickets to and where are they and they in the right yeah. place and some of those worries. I've also heard athletes talk about how stressful it can be in like sponsorship season. Um, once probably once they've already been an Olympian. Um, so what are some of the biggest things that you see really being a challenge for the Mm -hmm. athletes that you worked with? Well, I would say any of those things that I would, that I would identify as like challenges are really all connected to pressure, psychological pressure. And that in and of itself is the biggest thing. And, and so that would lead to a conversation about, you know, we, we generally all know, and even the listeners of this podcast, we've all felt the effects of pressure. You know, we felt that tightness in our chest. We felt the shortness of breath. We felt ourselves overthinking and overanalyzing. Um, we felt ourselves fearing failure. And, and this list could obviously be quite long. Um, but we're all intuitively aware. We've The majority of us, we felt the effects of pressure. Now, with an Olympic athlete, you know, or with any of these high-level athletes that we see on TV, you can just go ahead and mag- magnify that by 10, 20, 50, 100 times. But what, we, what we're not as intuitively aware of is where this pressure comes from. Why do we feel it in the first place? And this is probably the more important conversation because I, I would argue that the secret to performing under pressure is to understand it and to understand it on like a deep level and how it connects to you as a person. Um, because pressure comes from 
any situation where we feel like our identity as a person is threatened. So, so we can probably, if you want to, we can unpack that a little bit. That, that, uh, but that just in itself is obviously yeah. huge, but yes, I mean, yeah. these people have worked probably most of their young lives mm-hmm. and that is their identity. That's what they yeah. are known for. That's what that people talk to them about. That's what they go to sleep thinking about, mm-hmm. wake up in the morning for their day to be, I mean, it, their sport is their I mean, it's not healthy, probably, right? You're going to tell me that, but it is their identity for, <laughs> right. for how they are used to being. And you probably right. have to unpack that with them and make them realize there's a separation. And, and and I think this is probably one of the biggest things that we can learn from these high-level athletes. And it's something that I've been able to, you know, really powerfully apply to, you know, many of my clients are young now are younger developing athletes trying to make it, you know, either to a division one scholarship or a pro team, or, um, you know, even some of the national team athletes or the, or the aspiring national team athletes that I have, but let's back up a little bit. So in identity, so my identity, your identity, Kelly is really made up of two things. Number one is how you perceive the world around you values you. And the second thing is how you, how you find value in yourself. Now we all have an identity and and to a certain extent, every single person, even the listeners of this podcast, what they do has become a piece of who they are, whether it's a job, whether it is a sport or or it's a really, it's a, it's a hobby that they're trying to turn into something, you know, more long-term or it's their business, you know, for entrepreneurs, what we do absolutely becomes a part of who we are because it becomes a part of, and you think about these Olympic athletes or even just a young athlete who's incredibly talented, you know, the majority of this person's social system is wrapped up in their sport. Their family has invested resources, right? Countless resources into their sport. Um, you know, when people talk to them, what do they always ask them about or ask how it's going They ask about how their sport's going? And then obviously you, you magnify that to a high level professional Olympic athlete and they're on TV and their, their name has become synonymous, you know, with this specific sport or this specific position that they play in their sport. And so that, that absolutely can happen to anybody, you know, people who get a little bit too attached to their job or their job becomes too much of who they are, or this specific role in their life has just become too much of who they are. Well, now what happens when this athlete or performer or person finds themselves in a situation where their performance is going to, or could potentially have a direct impact on how people value them right. or maybe even more on a deeper level, how they find value in themselves. And when that, and that, and that, that creates a very threatening experience. It's a very raw evolutionary, you know, function that's, that's firing off here. Whenever you feel a threat, here comes that fight or flight response. Yeah, and then now, and then the all of a sudden fear. we feel this, uh, yeah. Then all of a sudden we fear feel of being devalued. Exactly. By others. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think, you know, of all the, of all the hard emotions to feel, you know, fear, worry, anger, doubt, I think shame is probably the hardest one to, you know, and and shame is nothing more than the fear of being unworthy or being seen as unworthy. And so when you, when anybody enters a situation where they feel as though the, the, who they are and how they're valued or how they value themselves is threatened, they're going to feel pressure, whether you're on the Olympic stage, whether you're on one of the smaller, whether you're a developing athlete and you're at a tryout, whether you're an entrepreneur and you have a big uh, pitch to give, or you're, a, uh, you're in your job and you have a big speech to give, you know, any right. of these situations, the, the experience of psychological pressure is going to be there. Yeah. When you talked about, um, 
athletes that are in the, in the, like the media. Um, it made me think of Naomi Osaka, who, mm-hmm. you know, just this spring withdrew from, I think the French open and Wimbledon all with the explanation of, you know, the media interviews are too much for her. And it's mm-hmm. amazing when you think about this person can stand on a tiny court in front of huge audiences live, right. Mm-hmm. Doing something, but sitting behind a mic answering a, you know, to a small press corps can really put them over the top. Right. So yeah. I'm sure that's something that you've seen that she's not the only one. Um, sure. Drew Robinson, I recently heard a podcast with him and how his life was so tied to baseball performance that mm-hmm. he, and it was really his own self-imposed um, values of what he was mm-hmm. putting on, you know, every at bat and all that kind of stuff. But I'm sure when you see these, these things happening um, in the news, is this something you immediately, you know, identify with as people, as some of the conversations you have with people? Absolutely. I think, I think we have to really recognize and understand, you know, when, when people take a step back and they try and identify like, what is it that people really love about sport or what is it that, you know, those, what, what is it that provides those moments that just make the the hair on your forearm stand up? You know, you get the goosebumps, um, the moments that we all remember. And I think, if you really take a step back and think about sport, the thing that we really marvel at about these performers and about these athletes is they have this infallible ability, just resounding ability to enter a situation where they're exposed, where they are, I mean, just open, they open themselves up to just incredible amounts of exposure, levels of exposure that the majority of us can't even fathom, couldn't even comprehend being able to do that. And in spite of this exposure, in this situation where they are so exposed, they're able to show up and deliver just these great and just these tremendous performances. And we see them and we kind of put them on a pedestal and we admire them, but we don't really recognize, and what's the effect of all that exposure? What's the effect of all that? You know, Naomi Osaka... And I've never had a conversation with her in my life, but kind of reading between the lines of, of some of the interviews, it seems as though the, or those interviews that she gives, what she's talking about is she's really talking about like, this is just, this is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back for me. Like I've, mm-hmm. I just got done going out and, you know, I'm one of the few African-American women in my sport and I'm a prominent name and there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of societal pressure that comes with that. And there's all these expectations. And I just go out there and I deliver a great performance. And then now I've got, and then now I've got to sit here in front of you and just embrace more exposure. And that's, that's incredibly challenging. And I think many times that's, that's not always a fair ask. And I think that it's not always fair for us as people to put the, to just expect that of these athletes. When, if I put any of the listeners or anybody in that situation, just any everyday person in that situation where you feel that much exposure, 98% of them after they're done, they want to go home, take a shower, curl up and go to bed. Yeah. They just want to lay in bed out of you. It does. I mean, I didn't, I've never thought about the exposure part of it and saying it like that, but it makes so much sense when you, when you explain it that way, because out on the court, she can like, she's trained for that and that's her comfort zone. But then we see so much, they're so exposed with any word that comes out of your mouth the wrong way. Someone takes it the wrong way. 
it's like, I can only imagine how exposed athletes feel um, with everything that comes out of their mouth these days, because it is a risk of your, your brand, you know, your, your reputation and all of those things aren't ever what you go into it thinking when you're an athlete, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not thinking about all those things that, that come at the highest levels. Yeah. Um, you're not thinking about those things in the early days, right. When you're yep. just training to actually, you know, play tennis or play. Well, and, and even then too, you think about, you know, before it was hard enough for an athlete, you know, to go on and say, you know, somebody on national television to go on national television and let's say they fail or there's a situation where they may fail or they may not come up big, you know, and depending on the sport and depending on the prominence of the athlete, that's all the, the sport talk radio shows are talking about. Like, does this person still have it? Are they washed up? And it's just, it's everything. And so, you have, you know, it used to be just the exposure of being a performer and constantly being evaluated and critiqued and criticized and, you know, speculation and this, that, and the other thing. And now the exposure doesn't stop just because you step off of the, mm-hmm. the ice, the court, the pitch, the field, doesn't matter. Yeah. You know? Exposure yeah. as a person, just mm-hmm. as your everyday person now, it's yeah. a whole nother world. Well, um, I have one more thing you mentioned earlier when you ask hockey players um, how much of their sport is the mental component Mm -hmm. and you talked about some different sports. So in your opinion, which are the sports with the highest level, you know, how much of this sport is mental? So let me, let me answer it two ways. So the first way is that every sport is, has a, has a massive mental component. I now, however, I think there are certain sports who have opened themselves up to for a much longer time um, to the idea of mental training and to the kind of investment in the mental side of their sport. Because at the end of the day, and I'll keep this, I'll keep this short. There's, and this is for anybody, any kind of craft that you have, whether it's a sport, a hobby, a career, there's really only four things that you can train. You can train the physical side, the technical side, the tactical side, and then the mental side, right? So physical side, bigger, faster, stronger, taking care of yourself physically. Um, Technical side, that's the individual like technique. So if you're a golfer, that's your swing. If you're an entrepreneur, that's how are you marketing? Um, There's um, the, the tactics, right? So as this is, you know, football game planning, baseball game planning, or if you're a business, right, what's our strategy going to be to capture more market share? So those yeah. are the first three. The, the final one is the mental side. And the mental side is in the way that I teach it. And I believe this to be true. The mental side is not there to replace any of the other three. Okay. Like it doesn't, doesn't matter how mentally strong you are. If you're physically, you know, incapable of executing the task or technically or tactically, you're not sound. The mental side is there to help you maximize the benefits of the other three. So as any person, right, you, you put all this time in physics to train your body physically, you put all this time in in technical training and tactical strategy development. And then now it comes time for the big moment to be there. The real question is how much of all that training are you going to be able to pull out and then apply to your task? So that's the long-winded answer to, to kind of breaking down the framework of how everything has a mental component. Now, as far as sports that are most mental, I, I'm going to answer that through the lens of the sports that probably have opened themselves up to the mental side um, of training and really embrace sports psychology or mental performance. And I would say those are majority of your individual sports. Yes. So golf, tennis, figure skating, um, gymnastics, golf I would was say my are, first one golf. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. it's all goes back to the individual component. It's all yeah. you. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you so for some, and, and this is obviously for the higher levels, you have a caddy there. Um, and sometimes your caddy is your coach or the caddy is involved like in the game planning, like he's kind of the on-field tactician. But in many respects, nobody else is picking up that golf club for you. And I think with individual sports, the mental training just looks a lot, it look, can look a lot different than team sports because team sports, you not only have the individual pieces that they all need their own you know, mental training and they need to be able to mentally perform and kind of optimize their minds to handle stress and pressure and adversity. But they're not just individuals, right? They're a collection known as a team. And then now it's others. Yeah. Now it's how, how does the team operating? And that's a whole different kind of special blend of sports psych and, you know, mental performance and and how do we optimize then the team's ability to function in those same environments as well. You mentioned gymnastics. That one hits me because that was my first sport. I was a young gymnast. Um, and that was sort of our life. And so I definitely see the mental component there and that you have to make a commitment. Are you, I mean, it's, it's kind of all you get to do for a while. Yep. You're a competitive gymnast. There is no time for anything else. There is like, you miss kind of everything that's going yep. on socially. Your only friends are kind mm-hmm. of your gym friends. Um, that's, that's gotta be your life. That's everything you eat, everything. Right. Um, and so, yeah. And then you look at these events and these, uh, moves, tricks, whatever skills that you're supposed to elements that you're supposed to achieve. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's written on a paper, some, some, you know, whatever level you're hitting, like, here's what you're going to get in this level to get to the next level. You have to have this checked off really well done. So you might see this thing that looks really unattainable. Like I can't do those two flips in the air and I can't do that Mm -hmm. yet. And so you have to be able to really like the mental strength it takes to commit to then say, okay, I'm going to take it one piece at a time and figure out how to chip away every day for hours to get to that skill, to get to the next piece. I would say one of the biggest populations that I've worked with has been figure skaters and gymnasts because the practice that I have out here in Denver, I've really kind of carved out a niche and really wanted to specialize with younger developing athletes. So youth, high school and college aged athletes, like basically people who are trying to make it. And obviously figure skaters and gymnasts are incredibly young. So you describe this sport that's incredibly mentally demanding and requires such a level of resilience to even just do the darn thing. Yeah. You know, and and I would say that figure there's so much there's so, there's so many parallels between figure skating and gymnastics and they're all exactly what you laid right. out in terms of the demands in terms of the elements in terms of kind of trying to tr- trying to climb this like hierarchy hierarchy within the sport. Well, that's that's so fascinating. I've, I've kept you a while and I appreciate your time. Um, yeah. I think it's all so interesting and it's such an important component of all these sports that we love and that challenge us. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate your time and thank you, Jay Tuft. I will link to um, your information, but um, you're the director of mental performance and performance excellence and recovery consulting in Denver. Yeah. If anybody wants, if you have any of your listeners that have some athletes or they are an athlete or performer themselves, if they want, I've got a free guide over on my website, train with perk is P E R C.com forward slash free guide. Um, that's a free guide. Basically it's three, it's three simple little things that you can install, um, to kind of help you better mentally prepare for that next big moment that you had. I, I built the thing with the, with the vision in mind of, you know, if somebody came into my office on a Thursday or Friday and they had a big thing on Monday, 
Jay, what are three things that I could work on over the weekend? Those are the three things that I would give them. So it's a great, it's a great guide. Um, I definitely encourage them to get over there and check that out. I love it. I'll go check it out. Cause (laughs) I love uh, that as a resource. So awesome. Well, it was nice talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kelly.